that thing on Tucker Carlson was not what happened. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup, is one of my favorite panelists, highly sought after, crisis communications consultant, political strategist, and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend, Susan Del Percio. Good morning, Susan. How are you doing? Great. It's wonderful to be with you and the two Scots. The two Scots, one of whom is returning to the roundup, Scott Tranter. Scott is the former director of data science for Marco Rubio's run for president. He's also an investor and advisor at Decision Desk HQ and an adjunct professor at American University, where he teaches quantitative and qualitative research in the School of Communication. Scott, welcome back. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me. And joining us for our lead segment today, the other Scott, award-winning congressional correspondent from CBS News, Scott McFarlane. Scott has interviewed presidents, senators, governors. He has done and continues to do some of the most exhaustive reporting of this unfolding investigation and the prosecution of January 6th attackers. Scott, thanks so much for being here today. That's the best part of my day, Ron. No problem. On this week's Roundup, First, we're going to discuss Tucker Carlson's release of clips of security footage from the Capitol on January 6th and how he is now shaping the narrative about the attack. Then we're going to talk about Joe Biden's budget blueprint, his plans for deficit reduction, and how House Republicans are planning to cut costs. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss Washington, D.C.'s criminal code reform that is about to fail in Congress, Joe Biden's announcement that he'll sign a law overruling the city council, and what that means for home rule in the district. To get ad-free access to the show, plus a catalog of additional episodes like the Politicology Plus conversation we're going to have today, click the link in the notes for politicology.com slash plus, or navigate to the Politicology Show in the Apple Podcasts app and tap the button there that says try free. We'll dive in right after this. Okay, in late February, Axios reported that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy had given Fox News' Tucker Carlson 41,000 hours of surveillance footage from January 6th. And on Monday, Carlson aired the first set of clips, including video of Jacob Chansley, he's better known to you as the QAnon shaman, walking through the Capitol complex on January 6th. Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick walking through the Capitol looking, quote, healthy and vigorous, according to Carlson. Officer Sicknick died the day after the attack. Carlson also claimed that Officer Sicknick's death was not the result of violence he suffered. So Scott M., I, 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 don't, want to, uh, I don't want to belabor the setup here um, since this is your zone of expertise. I'd love for you to lay out what clips Carlson featured and what new information we learned from these clips. Out of the approximately 41,000 hours of video to which Tucker Carlson was given some access exclusively by Kevin McCarthy, he showed a microscopic proportion of. We're talking about video measured in seconds that were shown as part of his segments this week. So it's a, it's a very small piece. And I'll tell you, what I saw was very symmetrical with other videos we viewed of January 6th. We've watched hundreds of hours those of us who've covered the criminal cases, because they show the videos as court exhibits. They show them in open court. Then they release them to media afterwards. So we've seen quite a bit of video from January 6th. Let me underscore a point without equivocation, without ambiguity. 
a lot of the video from January 6th shows people just walking around. That was some component of that day. There wasn't violence continuously from soup to nuts, from start to finish for four hours. The violence came in waves, Ron. It happened at moments, episodically, sometimes for 10 minutes at a time, sometimes for 20 minutes at a time, sometimes for just fleeting moments. The violence wasn't continuous. So what Tucker Carlson did, especially in his Monday program, was weave together some of the more dormant moments of January 6th, where perhaps the best known defendant, the QAnon shaman, the guy with the horns and the fur, was just walking around, seemingly with police trying to de-escalate him, trying to get him away from dangerous places. It was, for lack of a better phrase, unsexy video. Wasn't doing much. Tucker Carlson's trying to weave a narrative that January 6th was a largely nonviolent, if not political, protest-type event. That does not align with the truth. And showing episodic images of people just walking around is, at a minimum, a misrepresentation of the bulk and the severity of what happened that day. Now, misrepresenting as it is, uh, I have to say one of the more staggering pieces of tape was the footage of Chansley, because he walks right past a number of Capitol Police officers, a group of police officers. At one point, he walks with several officers, and to my eye, at the first viewing, it almost looks like they're escorting him. And this is all before he enters the Senate chamber. So has there been an explanation for their hands-off approach uh, from what you've seen? From what I've seen at trial, where there are similar moments where police are near um, rioters, marauders, attackers, but not trying to remove them or stop them physically, is that there is some form of de-escalation going on. You don't just tackle somebody who's suspected of a crime. And there are two reasons to de-escalate. First reason is true for all January 6th cases. The police were wildly outnumbered, not a little bit, by orders of magnitude. They didn't have the manpower and they knew it. So de-escalation tactics may have been one of the few tools in their toolbox that would be efficacious. But also, Jacob Chansley's different, not just because he wears fur and horns, though that certainly makes him different, but because he was one of the first inside. Jacob Chansley is a special case. He was one of the first 30 people inside the Capitol that day. So police may have been trying a different type of approach with removing him versus pulling out the pepper spray or the batons the way they might need to once they get outnumbered and physically accosted. They may have been trying to talk him out because they still had the numbers at that point. And they may have thought the number of people inside was going to be fleeting episodic, and controllable through de-escalation. So once I realized Tucker Carlson was going down the road of Jacob Chansley, I recognized he was going down a unique path, a defendant who may not match the others because he was one of the first inside, and there may be police near him who aren't physically commandeering him. And just to put a bow on it, Ron, we know he was one of the first 30 inside because in his plea agreement, when he pleaded guilty with prosecutors, he acknowledged being one of the first 30 inside. So we've now seen a really compelling narrative, Susan, about what happened on January 6th from the House Select Committee. Uh, it also aligns more with reality than what we've seen from Fox, obviously. But how can these new clips change the perception of the committee for Fox News viewers, for uh, Republican voters? And I wonder uh, how effective you think it's going to be. 
no one's mind is going to be changed on based on whose media they're watching. I mean, the Fox viewers are being reaffirmed by what they're seeing from Tucker Carlson, although it is, you know, misrepresentation. It's what they're seeing and and they want validation of what they're thinking. Let's remember they're tuning into a show because they want validation that how they feel is right. So this is just going to go on. And it's I, I don't understand, frankly, the, the real purpose in, in, in doing this from the political standpoint, from Kevin McCarthy's standpoint, as a matter of fact, it's actually driven a wedge within the House and the Senate Republican caucuses, which I find really, really interesting. But just to get back to the nuts and bolts, I do have a question for Scott, because I've been wondering this. Um, so one of the things that we heard about once it was announced that Tucker Carlson had this footage, we heard that it's it's irresponsible to for him to have this and be able to show security cameras and, and how dangerous it all was. But I started to think about it and I wonder if legal if it was so dangerous, wouldn't there have been a legal challenge to say for national security reasons that you cannot air certain things like wouldn't the police have put up more of a, you know, someone on the legal side would have put up more of a fight. I just wonder sometimes if as horrific as and wrong as it was that they, that Tucker got these tapes the way he did, if somehow some of the noise on the left wasn't drummed up a bit much. Well, that's a really good question, Susan. Two different answers <laughs> that aren't totally satisfying. First of all, the justice department has been emphatic in their court filings. They'd like to limit the display and sharing of this Capitol Police video during trials because they believe showing all of it in open court, giving all of it to people who are accused of insurrection, leaves vulnerable the Capitol Police, their security protocols, the placement and quality of some of the cameras. The Department of Justice has actually been arguing this in open court. They'd like to keep a little bit of control over access to this video because they worry bad things could happen. They've had some success with that, but they're the ones articulating that concern and they're doing so in the federal courthouse. Now, the Capitol Police, could they put up more of a fight? Well, they have a boss. They're strange type of police force we have in U.S. Capitol Police. They're a legislative branch police force. They answer to congressional leadership. That's their boss. Their boss is the Speaker of the House, at least in part, Kevin McCarthy. So if he wants something done, the boss says he wants something done. The Capitol Police are not subject to the Freedom of Information Act. They don't release police reports. They don't have open meetings like other police departments do. They are an opaque police department. So they really don't say things publicly. And to a degree, they think they can't. All right. So just to follow up, sorry. Um, when um, Mitch McConnell basically said, I stand with the police, you know, in that police report. Um, and that's where he aligned his beliefs on what happened on January 6th. It's not like we get to see those reports unless they release it. And it's only based from if it's permitted by the speaker and the majority leader right. to release the report. So I just wanted to clarify if I got that right, because now I'm absolutely like going bananas in my head trying to figure this all out. <laughs> oh, no, if you're covering this, covering this legislative branch will drive you bananas. That, 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 that's a guarantee walking in. Um, so the Capitol Police sent an internal memo. The chief of police sent an internal memo to staff to buck them up about what had just happened the night before on Tucker Carlson's show, saying, I stand with you, that these video clips were cherry-picked, that 
this was done as a misrepresentation of our police response that day. And Mitch McConnell was associating himself with that internal email, which leaked out, as it often does, and we all got our hands on. So Mitch McConnell was not associating himself with a formal Capitol Police report. He's associating himself with a letter from the chief to his team saying that thing on Tucker Carlson was not what happened. Yeah, Scott Tranter, um, I, I, uh, Susan and, and Scott McFarland now mentioned both Mitch McConnell, the chief of police. We also saw Senator Tom Tillis call Carlson's description inexcusable. He called it bullshit. We saw seven uh, Senator Kevin Kramer of North Dakota said it was just a lie to compare January 6th to a peaceful protest. And so I'm wondering, from a, from a data science perspective, when you think about the Republican electorate, how much does any of this actually matter? And and this is going to go to a question I have for you, Susan, after Scott answers, which is what's the communication strategy for McCarthy in all of this? Why why do this if what you know if the if it doesn't actually matter that much? And Carlson's just sort of giving a warm security blanket to his viewers to you know make them feel better about what they already believe. So how do you see this from a from a from an electorate standpoint? Well, what's interesting to me is now we have multiple months. As an, and an election of polling data um, on what people think about January 6th. And so when you saw Mitch McConnell go out and unprompted into that and that press conference address it and all these other senators, they're doing that with the knowledge of last cycle's election as well as at least 12 months of polling internal on it. And so I think that gives you an idea of what at least um, the leadership and establishment thinks about um, the January 6th issue and whether they want to relitigate it enough, they feel strong enough to actually come out and say those types of things. And that's what we kind of see in public polling as well. Um, public polling says that, you know, the majority of Americans it always depends on how you ask the question, as we know, but majority of Americans think it was um, somewhere between a, a vicious riot and an insurrection. And I use those terms specifically because it always depends on how you phrase it in the polling. Um, but by and large, no one thinks it was a bunch of tourists who got lost. Um, and, and I think that's kind of the, the big takeaway here is, is most of these politicians and most of these candidates think, look, public's already decided on this. They're moderately interested in it. And the ones who are really interested in it, they're going to go watch Tucker's show. And, and, you know, that's what it is. The majority of Americans are, are moving on and thinking about other things. And so that's why you see people, you know, people like Kevin Kramer and, and, and Mitch McConnell saying what they said. Also, because I think they believe it. Would you see it then as a as a vulnerability that they are trying to uh, seal up? I it remains to be seen whether it'll hurt them, right? Like I guess if you look at the polling, obviously there's a there's a real strong core contingent that cares about it, and you know is following some of these court cases and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So obviously, if they don't feel as strong about it, then some of those people who make January sixth their number one issue, they're losing out on. But I think it's a political calculation, right? Like there's always some people who, hey, my number one issue is this. And if this person doesn't support it, I'm not going to support them. You know, every politician goes through that. And so I think that's what they're saying is, yeah, we may lose some people, but we're not super worried about it. Okay. So Susan, this is, goes back to my question. Like what, what, what is McCarthy hoping to get out of this? Jonah Goldberg tweeted something a couple of days ago to the effect of, you know, what did you think was going to happen? Right. Uh, what is what's the goal here, especially now that he's been you know smacked around a little bit by McConnell uh, and some of the, some of the uh, Republicans in the Senate? Um, okay, I think it's wrong. So let's just be clear about 
when okay. I'm saying what their strategy <laughs> is, I don't necessarily agree with this. But don't agree this with is, it, sure. <laughs> you know, this is how you would play it out. You've got an issue that there's a bunch of people, a small amount, but who are very vocal in your conference and you took 15 tries to get elected and it matters a lot to them. It also matters to some of the bigger influences in the media for the people you're trying to appease. So what do you do? Well, you get it out early and fast because now we're going to be talking about the debt ceiling. Once this is out, it's while it's never going to be done because of the prosecutions and then the issue with Trump, at least they can say, check. They are checking a box in saying, we released your, you know, the other side. That's what I think that they're really trying to do. And they're doing it at a time, doing it early and hoping to move past it because it is a boneheaded thing to do. And you only do it if you kind of, your hand is forced. And I think that's what it comes down to. The biggest mistake McCarthy made where I think just angered so many other Republicans is it's one thing to leak something out a little early to Tucker and say, you can't do anything with it until it's released, but you'll already be able to package your story. But to limit it just to one news outlet the way they did is... I mean, it's an, to me, it's, it's really an assault on our democracy. I mean, it's really, it's creating state-run media, which I find just, you know, so dangerous, especially given where we are in our, in, in our history. So that, putting that, that's, I mean, that's a bigger issue that I think causes the Republican divide. For McCarthy, check. Yeah, okay. So... Scott, this is this this gets at something I I wanted to ask you about, which is um, you know obviously Carlson created this narrative with the backdrop of something we talked about uh, last week on the roundup. Lucy was filling in for me, which is the Dominion lawsuit filings that outline the differences between how Fox News hosts were discussing the 2020 election in private and on air, and you know I think a lot maybe too much has been made of the potential consequences of Fox losing this lawsuit, um, which, you know, potentially it could serve as a deterrent for them in the future if they, if there are financial, you know, costs to, um, to actively, uh, you know, trafficking in lies that they know are lies. So what I'm wondering is how does what we're seeing, you know, from, from Dominion and, and from that, that backdrop shape how you're viewing what Carlson is doing with these tapes. And I think at a more uh, personal level, um, I'd love to know how you read that as a, not just as a journalist, a capital J journalist, but as a human being and an American, uh, given the significance of what happened on that day. And given that, you know, you probably know more, more about what happened on that day than uh, most anybody in America, save maybe the members of the January 6th committee themselves and the prosecutors of the DOJ. So I lay all that at your feet. Um, and I, and I wonder, you know, how, how, how you're, how you're thinking about Fox's decision, Carlson's decision to go through with this, uh, given the backdrop of the conflict over dominion and what that says about, um, the coverage, if you can call it news that they're doing there. There is connective tissue between the Dominion Fox lawsuit and what happened this week on Fox News in prime time. The Dominion lawsuit and these very provocative court filings that are coming over the past few days in that suit seem to show some hypocrisy between what Fox says on the air 
and what they said to each other behind the scenes. The skepticism they expressed behind the scenes about the 2020 baseless election claims, about Donald Trump's claims post-November 3, 2020, and what they said on the air, there was a difference there. And this lawsuit is seeming to show that. So here we are now, this week, with Tucker Carlson making an argument about January 6th. And man, does he have a tall task. He's got to try to show that January 6th isn't what we know it to be. January 6th, the most photographed crime potentially in American history. January 6th, the largest criminal prosecution in U.S. history. More than 1,000 people charged with images from every angle, from everybody's cell phone, from every security video. He's trying to argue it's not the thing we see it to be. That's a tall task. That takes some elbow grease. Not sure how you pull that off, but it also may reflect what we saw from the Dominion allegations, that what they say on the air may not be what they truly believe. The day Tucker Carlson began this series of segments um, with baseless claims about January 6th was also the same day as a milestone for the Department of Justice. They reached 1,000 cases from January 6th that very day, and they're not done. The largest prosecution in U.S. history will get larger. They expect another 250, 300 arrests at a minimum. And oh, by the way, they're still looking for whoever deposited the pipe bomb. This is not going away. This is going to remain a prominent case in a story likely for years to come. On Wednesday, the New York Times reported that President Biden plans to propose a budget blueprint aimed at trimming federal deficits by nearly $3 trillion over the next decade. Just to clarify, he's talking about reducing the annual difference between government spending and revenue. This is not about reducing the debt. Uh, It's aimed at adding less to the already existing $32 trillion in debt. The Times reported that Biden's plan will rely heavily on tax increases on corporations and high earners, along with savings from some spending reductions. And the spending reductions are reported to be heavily focused on expanding legislation that allows Medicare to negotiate drug prices and lower the overall cost of the program. So Biden's going to announce a new 25% tax on American households worth more than $100 billion. Now that would apply to earned income and unrealized gains in the value of their liquid assets like stocks. So just to clarify, these unrealized gains are on paper only. So if you bought a share of stock for $10 and now it's worth $12, you have an unrealized gain of $2. But that caught that the value of that stock can fluctuate from minute to minute, from second to second. Biden proposed a similar tax last year, but at a lower rate, which is 20%. So he's jacked it up this year. The president is also eyeing a quadrupling of a tax on stock buybacks. This is up to 4% from 1%. That was uh, approved as part of the tax and healthcare and climate bill uh, he signed into law last year. White House officials also said this week that the budget blueprint would include an increase and expansion of an investment tax on high earners, which would be directed to the Medicare trust fund. And this plus drug price negotiation would result in a $900 billion deficit reduction. Now, President Biden is also expected to continue proposing some tax increases to offset the cost of parts of his agenda that haven't passed Congress yet, like expanding access to childcare, providing federally guaranteed paid leave for workers, establishing universal pre-K and free community college. So 
There's a lot to dig into here. Um, we're going to get to the unrealized gains part in a minute, Susan. Um, but Scott, there's been a lot of conventional wisdom that uh, raising taxes heading into an election is bad political move, right? Have you seen trends in how voters feel about increasing taxes, especially on high-income households, uh, changing? Yeah, no, and, and it's interesting. The 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 Biden budget, obviously, it's a proposal i don't i don't think any of us right. think there's any any legislation going to happen on this you know between now and the and and the election but it's it certainly makes a whole lot of talking points and that's kind of how i looked at it is is the way they phrased it and the way they they put it out there is it's high earners etc 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 um i haven't seen a lot of private polling on that there's been a little bit um and then there's only a little bit of public polling but i would imagine the reason it's why it's phrased that way is at this point you know, at least in the Democratic primary, which is a little bit what Biden has to be thinking about is, you know, going after high earners or high income people to pay for things like Medicare or healthcare or some of these other things is pretty popular. That polls pretty well, or at least is easy to message in the Democratic um, electorate. And it also plays well in, in parts of America where there are Republican voters who, you know, are fiscally conservative and things like that, um, who are the lower to middle income, um, no college education type thing. Um, those that 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 message plays well, and so I think that's probably why it's it's that angle. But yeah, generally speaking, taxes don't 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 uh, pull well. And again, it always comes down to how you phrase the question, right? Like if you, if I just phrase it, hey, do you want higher taxes? There isn't anyone who's going to say it like that. But I'm like, well, do you want higher <laughs> right. taxes for that rich guy you don't like? Well, of course I do. So I, I think that's a yeah. little bit, you know, we're, we're seeing the messaging matching some of the polling, or, or you know, some specific polling or some 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 polling questions like that. Yeah, we've seen more and more populism across the political spectrum from Donald Trump to Joe Biden to Bernie Sanders. So I wonder how you expect the rhetoric around taxation to reflect that. And do you see the appetite for populism uh, like the, like of the tax the rich variety growing on both ends of this political spectrum of uh, both the both the populist right and the populist left? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, no, it's it's basically it's an attempt to connect both ends on 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 one issue is we want to we want to tax the the wealthy or at least tax the people we think um can afford it and it's not us. Okay. Okay, so Susan, one of the pieces of Biden's plan that has received a ton of attention is the proposed tax on unrealized gains uh for households worth more than 100 million dollars. Now, one of the functions of this is that we would need to determine which households are actually worth more than $100 million. The reporting has not outlined exactly how the IRS would do that. After Biden's proposal last year, there was an op-ed in The Hill that claimed, quote, in order to enforce this tax, the IRS would have to be given vast new powers to value the assets of taxpayers. This would be an extremely invasive and difficult task the agency would have to keep detailed lists of assets of items like jewelry, art, baseball cards, and more. How do you expect the public to react to that? I don't, because it's not a real proposal that's going anywhere. What its purpose is, and as Scott mentioned, is to say, would you like a bigger child um, tax credit if it means um, t taxing the guy who's worth, you know, $100 million. Sure, I'm okay with them being taxed. Um, practically, 
I mean, the way it probably they'll they would have to set a date, for example, like when someone dies and you inherit their their portfolio, like that's when you get it. Do you say do you so when you're playing around with having to pay your taxes, do you say it was the day the person died or the day you received it? Because those could be drastically different things. If it's if it's a year apart, for example, the stock could be worth ten dollars or it could be worth 20 or vice versa. So, I mean, it's it, they, they would have to set up some parameters. But this is, and the whole budget for the most part, is set up as a talking point. And that's really what it is, is to go after that populist conversation. And more importantly, I believe it is set up to say to um, Kevin McCarthy, show me the money. What do you got? <laughs> Yeah, it's this is the tool to be a contrasting tool um, versus a proposal that anyone thinks is going anywhere. I mean, this they are only going to operate and pass anything based on major deadlines. Um, For example, the debt ceiling is coming up in a couple of months. They're going to have to do something there. A continuing resolution to keep the governing the government functioning. And this is all going to be a huge problem for Kevin McCarthy because he will need Democratic votes to get this done. And what will be the payback from those Republicans who don't go along with it? Um, you know, like the, the more extreme ones, will they say, <laughs> oh, we'll just take a vote to eliminate you as Speaker of the House because we can do that now. Um, it's, it's, and, and my favorite part about all of this, not my favorite part, I shouldn't say that, but the thing that I just keep watching is Mitch McConnell. He's like, go have at it. That's your problem. We'll talk when you get something, we'll talk because it's really up to Kevin McCarthy to show me the money. Like what's your budget? Budget proposals, essentially, I think as you're, as you're alluding to are just uh, proxies for conversations about what we care about, right? What, what, like a budget, a budget proposal is really just, here's the things that I care about. Now let's fight about all of them. Right. Yeah. The people used to say, you want to see, you want to know someone's values or where a politician said, show me your budget. I'll know where, what you care about. Yeah, exactly. So, 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 so really this isn't, we can say that this isn't a serious proposal. Is that fair? I think it is a proposal that is seriously meant to have a conversation around. I don't think it's a proposal that is meant to be voted on. Okay. So (laughs) if it's a serious proposal that is meant to signal conversations that the Biden administration would like to have, and the most eye-popping piece of this is a potentially vastly more invasive IRS in order to keep lists of assets that people have. Uh, how effective of a messaging strategy is this going Wait, to be ho- for Republicans? Hold on. That's in- your point of view. I'm sorry, Ron, but that is your okay. point of view of I, what I, really is eye-popping to you. It is at this moment, but... But I don't know that that's going to be the most eye-popping for everyone else when they're making their decisions on the conversation that they're having. Do you know Fair. what I'm saying? Like, I see what you're saying. Sure. And to me, it's like, bonkers because it's just a, frankly, a stupid government proposal that can't be done. But I don't know that that's what. Yes, it can't be. But, but the Biden administration has now proposed it, which makes it fair game for Republicans to message on it. And you could write some pretty scary ads about that. You can. And 
They know that because, and there, it's a trade-off, as Scott was saying, what is the messaging behind it? It's what you do with it. Plus, right. is this a conversation that Biden would rather have, or would he rather talk about immigration, for example? I think he'd rather talk mm, about this. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, fair. Uh, so... The Times is also reporting the Republicans in the House are getting closer to naming specific cuts on the budget as part of their negotiations to raise the debt limit. So uh, to to recap, um, McCarthy has said, like, we're 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 not passing a budget unless unless there are big cuts to the budget, big cuts to spending. Uh, Republicans are focusing on cuts to discretionary spending, including a 45 percent cut in foreign aid. Uh, adding work requirements for food stamps and Medicaid beneficiaries, a 43% cut in house programs, including phasing out Section 8 housing, uh, cutting the FBI's counterintelligence budget by nearly half, eliminating expansions to Medicaid from the ACA, the Affordable Care Act. Uh, This is all among other cuts. Democratic Representative Brendan Boyle from Pennsylvania called the cuts an outright war on middle-class America. He also pointed out that mathematically, if Republicans want to fulfill their plan of balancing the federal budget in 10 years, which is not going to happen, but won't cut Medicare or Social Security, which Biden got Republicans to agree to in his State of the Union, uh, or you won't cut defense spending, you need to cut everything else. Uh, And the guy who's advising them on all of this, Trump's former budget advisor, has admitted that you can't get there by discretionary spending alone, by cutting discretionary spending alone. So uh, how do you expect these fights over what to cut to play out uh, in the Republican conference, Scott, among, especially among like representatives in battleground seats? What is the, how does the politics of all this play out or are the numbers pretty much baked? Well, I, I, I thought it was interesting, uh, you know, as the down ballot thing, because it, it basically wrote, hundreds of commercials for congressional house races and it wrote hundreds of commercials for contested races in Montana and Ohio um, for the Senate. Um, I mean, I don't know what it does, but it certainly threw a whole lot of variables into the campaign paddleground that we're going to have to account for, right? Like the opening line, what I like to say, the opening line, which may change, um, is this gives Republican candidates, either incumbents or challengers, quite a bit to, you know, nail their Democratic counterparts on in terms of Joe Biden's just wants to raise your taxes and here's him quoting, you know, it is. Um, I, I mean, that's 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 going to yeah, be the ads right. and that's going to be what they're polling. And it kind of goes back to our original question is it all is how you frame it, right? Like if you frame it as we want to raise taxes on the rich guy down the street who you don't really like, then okay. If you frame it as you want to raise taxes on everybody, then not okay. And so that's where the messaging war really comes in. But I think President Biden, with releasing the budget and doing it the way he did, he laid down a mark and he said, we're going to win the messaging war uh, on this. And and um, and I'm going to give my my folks something to fight with, whereas the Republicans were like, oh, this is great. We've got we've got a message that we know has worked for 20 or 30 years. <laughs> and now we got some fresh content to put in our to put in our ads. And so I think basically it just it, it, it just put a whole bunch of variables on the field and, and we're going to see how they play out again. One other variable, which we didn't talk about, which is really important because it did have an effect on Republicans and Joe Biden, um, was Donald Trump. What else is he going to say you can't touch? Yeah. And Uh, that will put some of his, you know, is he going to be okay with the defense cuts that are going to have to come? I don't think so. 
I mean, he put, you know, he believes in putting more money into our military. So there's a lot of things that the Republican conference is going to have to worry about, especially Donald Trump changing their policy from Mar-a-Lago or jail cell, whatever convenient. <laughs> I mean, the, the, I, I hesitate to even ask this question because it all just seems so futile. Uh, but what's the path forward if Democrats won't accept cuts in spending and Republicans won't accept tax increases? Where do we go from here? Like we 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 continue down a very treacherous fiscal path, I think is the answer. And I don't see a way out of that. Do you? So here's the thing right now as it stands. The Democratic message is, yeah, tax the rich. We're from middle class. Um, yeah, we may have to raise some extra money somewhere along the line, but we're, this is what we, and this is, these are our values, like I said, through the budget. The Republicans' narrative before any of that is we don't have our act together. Their act is like everything's so torn apart. So when the public has to look at this as we're crashing towards a debt ceiling fight or continuing resolution, it's, it's like, okay, who do you think is holding us up? And if it, fall, if it goes through, if we default or we have to shut down the government, who do you blame? That's what this all fast tracks to is who's going to get blamed. I would make the argument right now, the Republicans get blamed because their narrative. And when I say get blamed, I mean by that small amount of people in competitive, you know, states and districts and, you know, not the, the true I's, you know, D's and R's because they're split. But where it matters is if it comes down to elections is who gets blamed. And today I see the, that the Republicans get blamed because they simply just don't have their act together. Yeah. The question I have is how much does it matter who gets blamed? How much does it matter when Republicans get blamed? Scott, the last time we had a, uh, a government shutdown, um, I mean, I can remember the Ted Cruz shutdown, right? Uh, who got, who got blamed for that and how bad did it hurt? Yeah. You know, they, they, I don't think the shutdown, especially when they happen around when they do, they usually happen at end of years, which is usually, you know, nine, 10 months before an election, if not more. I think, you know, it's good storyline when they happen. But what we've learned over the last five or six years is these political cycles are minute and, you know, long ones last a week and most of them last a couple of days. And so I, I don't know that the shutdown, I mean, especially when we look at it, I don't know that it really impacts a whole lot of this. Like how many people remember that Donald Trump presided over the longest shutdown, um, at least in recent memory, and that didn't really affect anything. So um, it certainly did at the time. It made for really good television, really good commentary, but it didn't really affect the election. I forgot about that one, frankly. Yeah. I, I yeah, forgot about exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah, point. but it goes to governance. <laughs> it goes to who you're going to trust to govern. That's yep. my point. Is well, the public doesn't trust anyone to govern. The polling's pretty consistent true. on that. The polling <laughs> thinks everyone sucks. So you are correct. You know, if it goes to government, it doesn't help anybody. It just reinforces what most of the public thinks is no one knows how to govern. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, man. And they're yeah. not wrong. <sighs> they're not wrong. Gover go perception <sighs> of government incompetence is a bipartisan issue. Sorry. I just, I just have to say, I might be, uh, to me, yes, the like IRS thing, the invasive, like the list keeping thing is, it, it is terrifying. It actually is terrifying. The president put this in his budget proposal and like that he's serious about this or that he's serious about having a conversation about this. I just think it's absolutely wild. 
It could go to the Unrealized deep state gains. theory. Like if you want to spin it, maybe that's where it goes into the deep state. But I think it's, I don't think it's, I think it's one of the most significant scary things, but I don't think, I think we think that. <laughs> and no one else uh, does. I think that, I think we think that because of how I would, how you, how you would communicate this in advertising, which would be sure. really scary. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what we're watching. Under the radar, over the radar. Susan, what did you bring for us today? I am really watching the lawyers surrounding Donald Trump. I think that there's a lot that's about to break with them in you know, the way these here, whether it's what's happening in Atlanta or in New York or the Department of Justice. I, I feel like this is the time where they're going to make their deal. Like, I think we're very close to this kind of, quote, deal making, especially. And I know everyone says that the elections doesn't affect their rate, how fast they choose to prosecute. But this is the time to, to have it break. It can't go much longer because it is really going you're going to have two people, for example, the president and Donald Trump and well, technically Nikki Haley running for you know, people are running for president. So they're going to have to move this. And I, but it's the lawyers, when you keep hearing who's showing up to testify, it's the lawyers who can, I think will be the potential like yay or nay of how this case go, how these cases go. Yeah. Don't you think that, uh, that I think Axelrod mentioned this recently. Don't you think that one of the biggest sort of questions that's going to be put to anybody running in the Republican primary is whether or not they'll, pardon Donald Trump? It's a great question. Um, it feels big. I mean, it feels real big. I don't know if that there's been any polling on this. Scott, I don't think just, any, I'm, you know, obviously no one would answer that question because there's no reason to. Well, right. what would he be pardoned for? Tell me what yeah. the crime, show me the crime. Is he convicted? Like, I, I mean, there's, too, there's so many ways of treating that as a hypothetical yeah. that I'm not worried about that conversation, that that response, it's a good question. Now, mm. if asked on a debate stage- Biden should ask it over and over and over again. Yeah. But you see, I disagree because I think Biden needs to stay in his lane where he's been most successful, which is kind of being like, we got to get back to the you know business. We've got to do bipartisan. He's the president now. He can't go on as a challenger the way a challenger would, frankly. Oh, no, not yet. I'm talking about in the general. Like later on when we get to ah, a general- That's assuming that's Donald nominee, Trump's the Donald nominee. Trump. Let's see mm. what happens there. Mm. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Scott. <laughs> um, you you know me, I'm always numbers and economy. And I think, you know, Fed Powell Chairman's um, chat yep. in the House yesterday was interesting. He basically I was telling people- you know, expect a half point rate increase or more, which is interesting because if you just look at the narrative, go Google economic headlines over the last 90 days. And we went from guaranteed um, recession to, oh, maybe it'll be a, you know, a touchdown, you know, a real, not even a soft landing. We're just going to graze the bottom and then go back up. And now we're back to, you know, recession. Um, it's going to be real bumpy, yep. real bumpy. And, and I, I just don't think this is the end. And I think the the question I'm looking at, and, and just this is more of a long-term thing, what I think is the economy or economic derivative issues were the number one issue in 2022, whether it was inflation or jobs or some derivative of that. Um, I my, my guess is that it has a potential to be the case again in 2024, 
but it just all depends on how long this plays off, right? Like right now, if you believe the headlines today, which I'm not suggesting anyone does in terms of projections, you know, we're looking at a recession in Q3, Q4. Well, if that's the case, then, you know, it's a year of economic recovery. What if the headlines are wrong by two or three months early or two or three months late? Like this, this, this is potential to go into the primaries and the general. And what's different now is, again, another number that came out this morning is, is the amount of debt Americans are holding on their credit cards. Right. And that's one economic indicator. But if you look at what it was in 09 after the last recession and what it is today, and it's not fair to look at a dollar dollar terms, but that's how people are, is it's more money now today than it was back then. Well, there's a little more money in the system now. But point being is, is we are now looking at similar 08, 09 recession. And, you know, we're not talking about big banks going under or tech companies not being able to pay their bills. We're talking about Americans who are defaulting on their credit card bills, those used cars they were doing. I mean, th this actually affects your neighbor. Um, it's not just headlines on CNBC. And so I think that those are the things that I'm looking at. And, you know, we look at these macro indicators to figure out what's going on locally. And I think it's still going to be a bumpy, unpredictable ride. Just out of curiosity, and, and yeah, Susan, Susan and I were both nodding along there. Out of curiosity, any um, specific sources or journalists that you'd recommend uh, for following uh, economic news that that is that that goes past those sort of like you know the up and down headlines that just seem to follow public sentiment without any real you know insider analysis? Yeah, I would say you know one of my favorite podcasts is, is Odd Lots um, by Joe Wiesenthal and Tracy Alloway. Both of them, and they're a little bit. It's not necessarily weekly news, but they cover some interesting economic angles. And they've had some good podcasts the last couple of weeks talking about you know um, supply chain, economic recovery. They talk about debt ceiling. You know, he's got he's got an interesting thing about the trillion dollar coin, which I think is probably a little bit more uh, serious than people give him credit for. But, uh, yeah, I would say that. And then, you know what, to be honest, from an economic standpoint, I, I might the, the, the same thing I will give in political news. Don't read one person, read them all and coalesce and cross reference, especially in economic predictions. Not one reporter. Read five. You may not like The New York Times, but read it. You may not like foxnews.com, but read that. Read them both and compare. All right, gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, uh, where we're going to discuss the D.C. criminal code reform. This is a really, really interesting story uh, that gets at D.C. home rule, uh, among other things. Where can everybody find you on the Internet? Susan. I am on Twitter, and my handle is DelPercyOS. Still on Twitter, grinding it out. God bless you. Scott, <laughs> where are you? Someone has I to. I, too, am on Twitter. <laughs> I, too, am Someone's on Twitter. Someone's got to do it. <laughs> What's your handle? Oh, S Tranter, S-T-R-A-N-T-E-R. All right, there we go. And as everybody knows, I've been drifting away from, I mean, I, I lurk, I read occasionally, but I very rarely tweet. Sometimes I'll check my DMs. Uh, but I still have an account on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.